all things being equal, if people took your suggestions in terms of just how to not be foolish about using other people's money, but then you say, okay, it's going to be successful. Then the biggest question you could ask yourself is how much did it cost you? Is your Amazon private label business set to survive the downturn? Most sellers don't know. Surviving a downturn means squeezing out more profits and slashing waste. But many sellers don't know exactly where their business is making or losing money. If that's you, we can help. Our new quick assessment helps you identify your biggest Amazon profit killer and what to do about it. For a quick but powerful diagnosis of your biggest issue, just go to AmazonProfitQuiz.com. That's Amazon Profit quiz.com to get your free instant analysis. Hey folks, this is Michael Vizi from Amazing FBA podcast for Amazon sellers. I'd like to introduce an episode from our sister podcast, The E-commerce Leader, which has got a slightly broader remit for all e-commerce sellers. In this deep dive episode, Jason Miles and I deep dive into a key e-commerce topic. Hope you enjoy the show. Hey there, folks. Welcome back to the second part of our discussion of ROI in e-commerce. As I hope you've gathered from the previous one, if you didn't catch it worth catching, this is quite a broad-based approach to the the idea of return on investment and the associated strategies as well. Today, we're going to talk about two super strategies that Jason has come up with, big picture thinking, but which really worth thinking through, which will have an impact, which is number one, decide what you're going to invest with. What are you risking? Money, time and employee time or money. Interesting one that people don't discuss enough, really, the blend between the ROI and those sorts of things. And then determining your approach to other people's money, mostly in this form of debt, but that's not the only form as we will discuss as well. So important topics to think through and through the lens of return on investment. I truly believe that this sort of thinking is the way that e-commerce leaders as distinct from just day-to-day managers need to be thinking. And uh, we love this stuff. We hope you do too. And I hope you enjoy another episode thinking about first principles-based thinking. So... What's the second super strategy then? There's plenty to talk about there. What's next? Yeah, second one is decide what you're going to invest with. What are you willing to risk? And it's actually more subtle than it might look. And it would include not just your money and whether that's a one-time or an ongoing commitment of your money, which is a big difference, but it also is your own time and whether that's a one-time or ongoing commitment, and your employees' time or your business assets, and whether that's one-time or ongoing. And these things that you decide to invest with are just really important to think through. And a lot of times, if we're money poor, but time rich, we can invest with time. Other times, we're time poor, and we're money rich, and we can invest. But either way, we've got to really be thoughtful about what's going to go into this venture. The worst thing you can possibly do as an entrepreneur, and many people do it, is set themselves up for a low-wage, 24-7-365 job. And they're their own boss, and they're a jerk to themselves. <laughs> you know, <laughs> that is not a good investment. Uh, yeah. If that's what you're, if that's what you're, ga- you know, aiming for, that's what you're going to invest with and into is that perpetual slavery to yourself for your own business. That's yeah. not a good investment. And you want to think through these things. What are you putting yeah. on the line? Really? What are your thoughts I, on that? I, I totally hear 
what you were just describing as being a nasty boss to yourself in a badly paid job, that I have a bad tendency to fall into that. And again, maybe it comes from a poverty mentality that was somehow inherited from my, my parents. Both grew up in the 1950s in the UK, which was when the UK was busy paying back um, America massive war debts, which didn't get paid off until 1997. But I won't hold it against you. <laughs> Joking apart, there, there was a lot of poverty in a lot of countries in Europe and indeed a lot of the world at that point. And maybe there was a sort of overly cautious mentality that is not correct for the current situation. So that you have a very good point about not setting up a situation where you end up investing too little money, but investing too much of your time. And actually, when you look at what that would do relative to a job, it's just worse than a job. And it's so easy to do that, actually. Yeah. Um, and I think it's very easy, particularly with things like retail arbitrage. Again, not down on the model. As you said, you could scale that to six, seven figures, but with the right mentality. And I think otherwise you, are, you end up with this in the classic Amazon seller and I guess two or three commerce generally. You end up with an unstable job working for a really slave driving, disorganized boss, <laughs> which is not good. And you're absolutely right to flag that up as a possibility. And the only solution to that is to mindfully engineer a really different situation and really keep checking. And that's where a coach yeah. or a community can really yeah. help you make sure you're not doing that. Cause you can't see, you can't see the wood for the trees when you're in a business. It's almost impossible to see your own business. However yeah. smart you are. Totally agree. And I think the nuance here is, so for example, what type of investment can you make for what type of return? Here's an example. Let's say you've set up a business and it's a going concern, total sales in the high six or seven figures or beyond, but you're working yourself to death. And you're constantly at it. Obviously, one of the investments you can make is an investment in an employee that liberates your time. And if that employee makes you zero money, but they give you back 10 hours a week or 20 hours a week of your personal time and they cover their own expenses, is that a good investment? Uh, the old four-hour you know, work week question. Yes, I remember that yes, one. Exactly, yeah, exactly right. It does depend on your personal circumstances, how you your marriage is doing. And a lot of employee, mm -hmm. a lot of entrepreneurs, I think, trash their own relationships. Uh, and that's a yeah. really a huge cost. There's a quote by a CEO of Pepsi or somebody like that. I can't remember. I have to dig it out. But he said something like, there are five balls in life, work, blah, 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 whatever the other ones were, and relationships. He said, the other ones are rubber balls, but you drop the relationships and health. Oh, no, that's right. With work, health something else, and then work family. He said, work's a rubber ball. If you drop it, it'll bounce back, which is interesting from a CEO from a hyper-competitive business. But he said, but relationships and health, you drop those, they're glass balls, they don't just come back intact. Oh, I thought that I didn't, was an interesting reality check. Yeah. I didn't hear what you phrased where you were saying, rubber ball. That's what you were saying. Yeah, they're rubber a rubber ball, ball yeah. versus yeah, a yeah. glass ball. Exactly oh, I love right. that. That's a really good metaphor. Yeah. yeah. It is. I and that. I think I, I, I occasionally say to people that I'm coaching, you do need to spend less time in your business because your marriage is obviously suffering. And mm -hmm. I am not a marriage guidance counselor. I have no interest in becoming that. But I know from my own marriage, like, it, it's really important to handle that. Yeah. And one of the conscious objectives you can set for your goal, but for a slightly less than business-like reason, but for your life, is I want to work 10 hours a week less, mm -hmm. but actually make as much money or even more. But even as you said, even if it's a little bit less money, but yeah. your business survives and your marriage survives. That's a big win. So yeah, I totally hear you on that. I've got some thoughts on the employee time thing. I think in terms of re measuring return sure. on investment for employees, there's some crude metrics and some rather better metrics. So it's crude metric is revenue per employee. Anything that was word revenue mm -hmm. is basically, I'm going to put this politely, a, a vanity metric. That's the polite version. It's the way mm -hmm. of you know impressing your friends at a bar uh, if you're at an entrepreneur's convention. 
But yeah. it, I don't think it's a very rational thing to drive things. A better metric is gross profit, of course. Um, but profit per employee is a little bit crude as well. The better thing that um, Craig, Greg Crabtree from Simple Numbers Straight Talk Big Profits, one of my favorite thinkers about this stuff, a very robust CPA with very entrepreneur-friendly ways of thinking. He says, think about gross profit, not revenue, per labor dollar, not per employee. And then suddenly it becomes really an ROI equation. You put money into labor, you get a profit out. Mm -hmm. um, wow. And that's called labor. And the, the more specific thing you want is labor efficiency is gross profit per non-labor gross profit dollar. So you, that's a way of measuring the ROI on labor, basically, which is a super uh, yeah. way of doing it. I don't think it's super hard to calculate when you make a mission of setting your finances up that mm -hmm. way to measure it. But it's something I don't know anyone who does it. So I think it's really underused as a way of doing it. I love it. Important stuff, I think. There's a couple of other things he says about that, by the way, which I'd love to discuss with you. He says he's got four little things about labor in relationship to ROI. All labor must be productive. Another interesting thing, which probably begs another podcast, but let's just knock it around. Culture, productivity, and profit profitability must all live in harmony. Culture becomes extinct without profitability, becomes extinct without productivity. I thought these are like, this is powerful mm -hmm. stuff. I really like mm -hmm. Greg Crabtree. What are your thoughts on those? I like that concept a lot. I'm actually um, spending time and energy right now looking at Muhammad Yunus's work on social businesses. So profitability, mm -hmm. the profitability piece is, is not just ownership, net profit back to them. In the social business context, profitability could be distributed to all the employees. It could be, again, as we already talked about, uh, time value. So I think there's a lot of ways to still look at this depending on the context. But I, I do think those are interesting ideas, how they work together for sure. Yeah. Another thing he he said, a couple of other things. Again, this is ROI as it impacts on people. He says, Greg Crabtree again. So wages based on the market, not on the cost of living. So it should only change on the basis of market forces. And the other one is evaluate talent based on productivity, not on years of experience, which is an interesting one, right? It's easy to say and hard to do. Mm -hmm. Yep. Anyway, a couple of thoughts about employees. So that's the first two strategies. What's our third super strategy for ROI? Super strategy number three is a huge one, and that is determine your approach to other people's money. Now, other people's money could mean debt. It also could mean investor income or partner income investment. So it's beyond just taking loans. I think it means taking partners, taking equity investment from uh, investors, that kind of thing. So other people's money. So here's a, a few nuanced points around this. Other people's money reduces your need for upfront cash, obviously. Like it gives you more money than you currently have. Uh, that's cool. But it creates an obligation. It potentially compounds your return on your own money if things go well, but it also can compound your losses if they go badly. And number three, it can also speed your growth radically with the other people's money. You can literally do in one investing cycle or one year, let's call it, what you might have done yourself in two, three, four, five years if you were just bootstrapping it. So it really gives you fuel, you know, for the rocket. And then finally, the fourth thing about other people's money is money does not come without strings attached. It adds other people's voices, other people's priorities. And I think those are really important things to think through. Is it worth doing or not? What's your approach to it? And how are you going to weave it into the return on investment thinking? What are your thoughts on yeah, it, Yeah, you're right. This is really worth thinking. 
Yeah, there's a lot of, again, the, the first thing that strikes me is the same thing. We The fundamental concept behind asymmetric risk-reward we talked about is risk-reward analysis. And uh, if you're going to considerably increase the risk, you want to make sure that you're going to considerably increase the reward. And specifically, again, we were talking about optimists versus well, like, realists slash pessimists. Um, we tend to fall at different ends of that spectrum, which is always fun. And we're falling into the cliche of the optimistic American. I, I know lots of optimistic Brits. Maybe I'm just a cynical person. But again, you need to make sure that you're creating a business for yourself and your family. If your wife or yourself or both of you are going to be awake at night worrying about the amount of debt you have, even if theoretically somebody else would be perfectly comfortable with it as a business decision, then you shouldn't do it because I think you've got to make a business that works for yourself. And that's when economics driven thinking needs to be nuanced with personal kind of emotional response to economics really yeah. is the first thing that strikes me. Yeah, totally agree. And and this thinking is really important because how you set up a deal with other people is incredibly important. If you take money, for example, and you it's a loan and you pay it back, simple interest, great. That's very different than taking a commitment to have future royalty stream or ongoing, hey, you have to pay somebody in perpetuity forever from any incremental sales. So just these small changes in how you apply other people's money can make a huge difference in terms of your net profit. It really can be just a completely different from success to failure or failure to success, depending yeah. on how you use other people's money or don't. And, and I think yeah. that's really critical to think through. I just want to say a couple of things. First of all, tying things back into the asymmetric risk-reward ratio we're talking about, I'm always obsessed with trying to put that into every part of my business, particularly other people's money. So I think the main thing is to limit the downside. And the reason for that isn't just being a pessimist, although if you are more pessimistic slash cautious, you should really focus on that. But even if you want to gain a lot, if you think there's a massive upside potential, as Jeff Bezos said, if, if there's a one in ch 10 chance of making 100 times return on something, then you should take that bet, but you're going to have nine times where it fails. And you want to make sure you can physically cash flow and mentally survive those nine times. A couple of things that, that occur to me, first of all, apply other people's money only to highly proven product lines or sales channels. So people every so often say, should I borrow money to start an unproven business? I always just say, absolutely not. And if you want to do it, I can't help you. So a couple of things that are nuances to that, just because it hasn't happened doesn't mean it couldn't. For example, just because you've never had an Amazon account suspended doesn't mean it couldn't happen. So you may want to consider building up a Shopify channel to say 10% of your revenue, even for no other reason than it's a, a risk mitigation factor. And then I might take on more risk, other people's money in the Amazon channel, but knowing that I've got a channel that can keep the lights on should that fail for a while. The other one is risk factors related to product types, which again, you may mm -hmm. never have historically had somebody cut themselves on your hunting knives that you're foolishly selling. But it could happen. And you need to just think about the fact that you may not want to pile a bunch of money into something, which if you scale it enough, you could end up being the next Wayfair sort of test case, which you don't want to have. Yeah. So, yeah, so that's sure. the main thing that strikes me to de-risk OPM is just be careful what you apply it to really. Yeah, I, I think those are good principles. I guess my biggest suggestion for de-risking OPM would be to really evaluate what people call the cost of capital. And I think that's actually all things being equal. If people took your suggestions in terms of just how to not be foolish about using other people's money. But then you say, okay, it's going to be successful. Then the biggest question you could ask yourself is how much did it cost you? And you can get capital from all different sources. You can use your credit card. You can use a home equity line of credit. You can use a, a secured business loan from a bank. You can use an investor writing you a check with the certain obligations that you guys create together. There's just so many different ways to get capital. 
the biggest question you can ask yourself is what is the cost? And to your point, it's not just financial cost, but it's also the strings attached, their voice in the business, what your obligation is in terms of reporting, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so I think that's a key part of understanding ROI is if you're going to use other people's money, how and and how much to do, how big a risk to take. And it's people have what you might call moral issues with debt, biblical issues from a Christian point of view on that topic sometimes. And so you have to sort through that. Is that logical in my situation? Do I do you know, am I willing to take on debt or not? You hear voices of people who say never do that. And then you hear people who say, hey, it's just a another part of financing your business. And you've got to think it through yourself. And I think at the end of the day, that's the issue. You've got to decide for yourself what you're comfortable with, you know. It's interesting. I mean, I, th- there are Christians in the UK, clearly, but it's never something I've ever heard anyone talk about in my life outside of the USA. So I think that may be mm-hmm. something that people yeah. in the US grapple, grapple with because a lot of people are church-going Christians. And, mm-hmm. and I imagine that in the UK, for some Muslims, that could be an issue because obviously they've got a, a sort mm-hmm. of non-debt thing going on rather like the christians in the middle ages had what they did is outsource it to the the jews particularly in in Mm -hmm. italy so uh, i would argue that a lot of the time people end up taking on debt like things without admitting they're taking on debt that's a whole different ball game i'm going to leave that to the specialist to discuss but you're right you've got to make sure you can so another implication is in terms of business ethics which we haven't talked about for a while is for yourself does your ethical framework match up with the business practices of course absolutely and i guess you've got to have your own integrity about that that's a, a personal thing but you're right you don't to be doing something because you feel you should or have to that you yeah. just feel bad about absolutely the other thing i'd say is it's very easy to end up thinking that other people's money means debt or equity and i think there are other things in between i'm not saying these are just without their downsides but you could consider factoring your receivables that's got a lower risk profile there are some more imaginative options i spoke to a chap whose name i forget which is really bad because i'm an affiliate of theirs but i'll put it in the show notes but you could do inventory purchase via those guys which is really unique so basically mm-hmm. they buy your inventory advances for fba sellers then they sell you sell it on consignment so they own it but you sell it and then you you know basically pay them back with a bit of interest. So that's quite different because they don't own a piece of your business. They have fewer claims over your business. So it's a simpler kind of model in some ways. So there are a few different ways of using other people's money that it's worth thinking about and being imaginative about if you're not comfortable with debt per se as well. Love it. Let me wrap this up and then we'll ask you a final question. So the three ROI super strategies we've talked about today is this is your game to play. Define your rules. Number two is decide what you're going to invest with. And number three is determine your approach to other people's money. So hopefully this has been a helpful episode today in the podcast. Michael, before we wrap up though, let me just ask you, we haven't ever talked about your consulting work recently and how you're you know, supporting folks there in London and beyond globally. Tell us a little bit about your consulting work just as a, a, bla- a blatant opportunity because we just haven't talked about your one-on-one work lately. So what's going on in your consulting practice? Things are transitioning, really. I'm really, I'm transitioning out of t- services to startups because it's just hard to give people a, a, an ROI, talking about ROI. It's just not very easy to charge, even very modest money. So I've been working on some things with sort of smallish uh, businesses in the sort of maybe thirty, forty thousand $40,000 a month range trying to transfer to transition upwards. And uh, I want to, to do that in a group course coaching level, which I'm designing right now and got some cool insights from some business coaches on how to do that how to run that so that'll be coming over the next few months i'm also privately working on some beta versions of deals with services for for some mid-figure 
mid seven figure Amazon sellers I'm in discussions with. This is very early days, but I realized that doing conversion rate optimization on Amazon for me is like falling off a log because I've done so much of it. But actually, a lot of businesses haven't got the time to do it. So I thought, actually, I was discussing with somebody else the other day on how to do it. And I thought, well, instead of telling them how to do it, I could just do it for them. And uh, the trick with them that's going to be very interesting is how to do this in a systematizable way that you can do it scale because they the particular person I'm talking with has over 2000 SKUs. So we need to figure out ways to pick our fights as in which ones are going to be identify low hanging fruit, which has good potential to improve the conversion rate, but the conversion rate is quite low. Typically, it would be high traffic, moderate conversion rate products. And then once we've got the 80-20 or even 95-5 of identifying those products slickly, then finding repeatable, scalable ways to optimize those at scale. So that's going to be a very interesting little project if that comes off. Uh, And then I'm looking to get a handful of clients to do that with as well. So that's uh, quite exciting. I'm looking forward to doing that. So how can people connect with you if they want to learn more about what you do? Sure. The easiest thing, I mean, none of this stuff is out on any websites yet. So just at michael at amazingfba.com, just email me and just say that you're interested in having a chat and we can just set up a Zoom call. And what I suggest, we, we have a very quick call just to see if it's of something that could be something of interest. And if it is, then we have a longer call possibly with anyone else from your team that needs to be on the call and uh, see if it's a match. I'm honestly not going to be highly salesy. What I'm looking to do is to beta test an approach to make sure there's a great return for the clients, that I can scale it without going crazy. And then if it works, we'll just you know get a handful of clients on. So you won't get a hard pitch from me, but I'd love to explore how I can help because I realize that I'm underusing my abilities and I see a lot of problems. And rather than just advising people on how to do it, I've realized I should be getting involved yeah. in doing it with them. Love it, man. All right. Wonderful episode. As always, thank you, sir. Had a great time today talking. Me too. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to the 10K Collective podcast for six and seven figure Amazon sellers. I really hope you found the show helpful to you. Please don't forget to subscribe to the show. And if you're on Apple Podcasts, please do leave us a quick star rating. It will take you all of 30 seconds to do it, but it does mean we can be found by and help many more e-commerce business builders. I wish you fast and profitable scaling, and I hope you enjoy the process of building your seven-figure Amazon business. Thanks very much for listening.